So I thank you for those of you who have been praying for my mom for reaching out to Tammy and I over the past few weeks. We definitely still covet your prayers uh, for mom, for dad, but I'll tell you our hope is in Christ. Our hope in the resurrection is real, and that is an anchor right now in the midst of sorrow and uncertainty. So we continue this morning in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, picking up where we finished off last week, focusing now on chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we find in these few verses a continuation and ultimately a completion of the argument that Paul has been making to encourage the, and build up the Colossian church in the face of false doctrine and teaching. These Christians were dealing with compelling and believable arguments. Paul calls them plausible arguments in verse 4 of chapter 2. And we find that Paul's equipping of the Colossians, Colossians involves putting them, pointing them back repeatedly to the overwhelming sufficiency of Christ. So this may be overly repetitive for some of you, but I think a review of where we have been over the past few weeks is going to be helpful as we launch into this passage this morning. After Paul's opening introduction in this letter, he launches into a Christ hymn in chapter 1 that lays out in clear and plain language Christ's supremacy and preeminence in creation, in the ongoing sustaining of creation, and in the resurrection and new creation. Most simply, Paul points out that Christ is supreme. So two weeks ago, Pastor Josh addressed chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul began with these verses. Uh, he has a forceful statement here. He says, he starts out with, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Though Paul lists the specific dangers here of philosophy and empty deceit. The problem that he identifies is rooted in the fact that whatever these alternatives are, they are not according to Christ. And he explains why it's so critical to focus on the sufficiency of Christ in verses 9 and 10. For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul's case, then, is simply this. Christ is supreme. He is fully sufficient. He is fully satisfying. Why, then, would you believe or follow anything that attempts to add or supersede him? And then last week, we heard Pastor Tate address Paul's appeal to the believer's spiritual circumcision in Christ. That is, the circumcision that's made without hands in chapter 2, verse 11, and its relationship to Christ putting off of the body of the flesh in the same verse, describing ultimately Christ's death and resurrection. We're joined to Christ in a spiritual baptism in his death and resurrection. 
Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this morning, we get to look at the finalization of this case that Paul builds regarding Christ's sufficiency in all things and how a full understanding of this truth provides a thorough defense against human cunning, against doctrinal instability, and plausible arguments, combining there what Paul talks about in Colossians and in Ephesians. I do want to cover two real quick notes before we jump in in earnest in this. First, in Colossians 2.5, um, Paul makes a rather surprising statement, I think, when considering the matters that he discusses in this letter. He says, For though I am absent in body... I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is surprising because despite the fact that the Colossians' faith in Christ was firm and established, Paul recognized, Paul still sees foundational value in repointing them to the very essence of the gospel itself. As we'll see in a few minutes, he does not appeal to some deeper spiritual truth or something that's obscure. Instead, he simply leans on the work and the supremacy of Christ. If your faith is firm this morning, I encourage you to look afresh at the gospel, be recaptured by it, and that according to Christ, 2.8. If your faith is shaken, though, this morning, look afresh at the gospel. See that Christ is fully sufficient and fully satisfying. And if you're outside the faith this morning, Hear the gospel and see that Christ is supreme. If you miss out on Christ, you miss ultimate, eternal satisfaction for your soul. So the second thing I want to look at before we jump in, Colossians 1.12 and 2.7, point out the result of a more full understanding of what Paul is writing here. Uh, in Colossians 1.12, thanksgiving to the Father is brought out. And what ultimately is thanksgiving to the Father? But a part of worship itself. In 112, we see Paul's assumed outcome for the Colossians as a result of their wisdom and understanding in the things that he addresses in this letter. He expects them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Then in chapter 2, verse 7, we see this expectation of thankfulness repeated this time with an increase in intensity. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding now in thanksgiving. So the goal of all of this information that Paul's sharing is not merely to instruct the Colossians for the sake of increased knowledge, but to draw the Colossians, and by extension us, into a humility and a joy that explodes in, that abounds in thanksgiving to God the Father that's rooted in the completed and sufficient work of Christ on our behalf. So, enough background and prep. Let's begin in our passage this morning. After intensely focusing on the objective truths regarding Christ and his sufficiency, Paul shifts um, to the results of these truths for the Colossian believers. This is, this is really helpful because we, we find Paul using doctrine 
that is correct knowledge and teaching about God as a very real, a very practical defense against being led astray and as a foundation for thanksgiving and worship. Colossians 2.13 And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And you, Paul starts out, he refocuses from the general truths that he's already addressed to target specifically the readers of this letter, the Colossians. Paul, a Jew of Jews, is pointing out the dual damnation of the mostly Gentile Colossians, and therefore their state before they understood the grace of God and truth. So we're going we're gonna to jump back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians a few times this morning, so maybe keep your fingers there if you have a Bible or if you have a phone. I don't know what you do with a phone, but um, if you have a Bible, keep your finger in, in Ephesians. Um, Paul penned this letter to the Ephesians uh, at about the same time that he wrote to the Colossians. In it, we find some helpful and expanded details on a lot of the same truths that he's addressing here to the Colossians. Let's look at this phrase, dead in trespasses, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul gives a description of what this really means. And you, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We see Paul's explanation to the Ephesians, and similarly the Colossians, of the completely bankrupt spiritual state from which they came in this idea of being dead in trespasses. But then in Colossians 2.13, Paul goes on. He refers to the uncircumcision of the flesh in addition, in you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So jumping back again to Ephesians, if we look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul expands on this, addressing another mostly Gentile congregation in the Ephesians. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So based on Paul's description of these phrases in Ephesians, we have in Colossians 2.13, this idea of being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, both of them pointing to separation from God, being children of wrath, having no hope without God in the world. These aren't two distinct and separate states. Paul is driving home the point that Jew or Gentile, the Colossians and you were without hope. Not the miracle max mostly dead, not just spiritually sick, but completely dead in your trespasses. In the letter to the Romans, Paul addresses the same subject, making clear to both Jew and Gentile that everyone is under sin. Romans 3.9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks or Gentiles, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Quoting from Psalm there. So our first point this morning is Christian. Remember where you were outside Christ. You were dead in your sin without hope. So it is helpful to note, both in Colossians and in Ephesians, that Paul is addressing believers. It's clear in the use of the past tense in this verse, you were dead. At one time, you were separated from Christ. So he knows he's writing to followers of Christ, and what he writes next is explicitly applicable only to followers of Christ. So as as we continue through this passage this morning, I suggest that you mentally take note and place yourself in one of these two categories. Either you were dead in your trespasses, or you still are dead in your trespasses, separated from Christ. Ultimately, these are the only two categories that matter in the scope of eternity. So, uh, picking up now in the second half of verse 13. And you, who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So, overall, in this verse, we have an amazingly concise picture of the law and the gospel together. The first half of the verse, trespasses, as we just saw, we see the law, we see our measure against what God requires, perfection. We fall short. Relative to the law, all of us have failed. Psalm 14, there is no God. The fool says in heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They do abominable, abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I'll tell you, this is not good news. It's not good news for anyone. But in the second half of this verse, we see the gospel, the good news. We see what God provides, life in Christ. God made alive. The creator who breathed the very first breath of life into the scooped up dirt named Adam now animates the spiritually dead by giving new life in Christ. This is no more the work of the individual person than the first breath of Adam originated from his own will or effort. God alone does this work. God breathes life into the first creation, and he makes alive the second creation. And Paul ties this work directly to the resurrection of Christ as he connects back to chapter 2, verse 12, in talking about believers being raised with him through faith, through Christ, raised with Christ through faith, and now we are made alive together with him. This work of making alive is an act that's done to you, not by you. It's not done with your help. So this verse encapsulates two distinct states, dead in trespasses and alive together with Christ. If you're thinking you made yourself alive in Christ, maybe by your own goodness, by your own righteousness, your accomplishments maybe of certain religious duties, I'll caution you, God alone makes alive. If God has not forgiven you your trespasses, you do remain dead in them. But if you hear these words this morning, there is still hope. God can make you alive. 
Let's continue, though, now in verse 14. I'll pick up the end of 13, and we'll continue into 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We'll come back to the canceling of the debt here in just a moment. But first, we should see this is Paul's description of the debt. And he expands on what he's already said from Ephesians. This record of debt has two important properties. First, it stands against us. And second, it has legal demands. So first, in standing against us, there, this, is, this is an accusing phrase. We see the same word used by the author of Hebrews. It's translated differently, but it gives the same sense. Hebrews 10.26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That, that word, adversaries, kind of helps emphasize the negative, the adversarial nature that describes this record of debt that stands against us. And then second, there are legal demands that are tied to this record of debt. It demands resolution because it involves violation of the very law of the holy, perfect God of the universe. So as sinners, we stand under a sin debt, accused by a list of our offenses against the holy God. Men, that might be the second look that's driven by lust. Fathers, did you provoke your children to anger this week? Speaking to me as much as to you. Maybe it was foolish talk or crude joking, a rebellious heart against the supervisor. Or maybe a heart of anger toward that guy who cut you off while you were out driving yesterday. These are sins of commission, things that we do. But Paul includes here not only these sins of what we do that we should not, committing a sin, but sins of omission, what we don't do that we should. Um, it also includes our very nature, though, inherited as sons and daughters of Adam, the sin nature. We just looked at Ephesians 2, 3, but again, I want to emphasize this. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Paul narrows in on it here, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We see action in this, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, something we do, and we see innate character, by nature, children of wrath. Paul explains this nature in Romans as well, pointing to its source, which I've mentioned already is Adam. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, interestingly, just this week, I received an email from Ligonier Ministries. Some of you may have seen this. They report the results of their state of theology survey. Uh, the metrics are pretty fascinating uh, and, unfortunately, not particularly encouraging. <laughs> uh, regarding this idea of original sin, specifically, or the sin nature, respondents had opportunity to agree or disagree with this statement everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. You see this everywhere. Unfortunately, 65% of respondents who were self-classified, self-classified, as evangelicals agree with this statement. 65%. Uh, 
Make no mistake, though. You sin because you are a sinner. It's your nature. It's not the other way around. You may think you're pretty good, but even if you're given the benefit of the doubt, every single one of us has this inherited sin nature. Just as we saw in Ephesians, in this nature, all on its own, we are placed under a sin debt. So now that we've seen a bit regarding the nature of the debt, let's back up. I said we'd back up to the cancellation of this debt in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. The word that Paul uses here for canceling carries with it a, a completedness, a finality. It's not just a stamp of canceled in bold red letters. The word translated elsewhere in the New Testament is blot out, Revelation 3.5, where a name is blotted out or not blotted out from the book of life. It's translated as wiped away, Revelation 21.4, in Christ wiping away our tears. The idea here is described by one commentator as complete destruction of that which was against believers. So Paul goes on to expand on the canceling, blotting out, wiping away of this debt. He says in verse 14, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So according to Paul, this record of debt has been canceled and it has been set aside. He's, he's further driving home here the concept of complete el elimination of our debt. But how can this be? How can my record of debt excuse me, your record of debt be canceled, how can it be set aside or blotted out? How can the legal demands of this debt be sufficiently satisfied? For a judge to arbitrarily eliminate a debt or a punishment for a crime, we would not call that justice. It makes a mockery of established law. Some might consider such a thing merciful, but it would not be just. And God is perfectly just. So how can this be? How can the legal demands of your sin debt, of my sin debt, be satisfied? Well, by God himself in Christ, in his work on the cross. God made Christ to be our sin. 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And there's another picture here in this passage too. Maybe you've already made the connection. Paul says in our verses that our record of debt is nailed to the cross. It was not unusual for a crucified criminal to have a small sign fastened to the cross that listed his crimes, that is, his debt to the law. We see an example of this in the book of John. <clears throat> Excuse me, John 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription. This is our, our inscription, our note. He put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews... But rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate's answer, what I have written, I have written. So Jesus, our substitute, and also made to be sin, 
our record of sin debt now in the person of the crucified Christ, nailed to the cross, hanging in judgment by God before man and all spiritual rulers and authorities, Paul points the Colossian Christians to Christ becoming sin, dying a substitutionary death on our behalf, and being nailed to the cross. John records this nailing to the cross event. We talked about this on Good Friday. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. This it is finished term, it's used by merchants with regard to payment. It means paid in full, no balance due. The sin debt is no longer held against us as believers. It hasn't been arbitrarily wiped away, as mentioned before. That wouldn't really be true justice. Christ himself, the only one who could resolve this debt, himself in his own perfect life and willing death, takes on and pays this debt on our behalf. Our debt of sin has been fully paid in and by Christ. You know the hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So Christian, know what you are in Christ. You are alive, and you are forgiven. Then last week, we saw as, that as believers, we've been made alive together with Christ by participation in his resurrection. We see this morning that our sin debt has been fully satisfied in Christ's crucifixion. And now, we have the final pillar of Paul's encouragement to the Colossians in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This idea of disarming is compelling. I have a couple of boys who are very much into a martial arts self-defense discipline, and one of the things that I know that they have told me many times are very anxious to start learning is how to disarm an opponent who has a weapon. That is, to deprive their opponent of that weapon, of the means of attack. This removal of a firearm or a knife or other implement of harm. Um, for me, I'm probably more of the mind that the best defense is a good pair of running shoes in such situations, but disarming is where they, they would like to be. Um, here, though, we have Paul stating that in Christ, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has deprived those spiritual rulers and authorities of their means of attack. So who are these spiritual rulers and authorities? In what way have they been disarmed? Well, earlier in this letter, Paul references rulers and authorities multiple times, pointing out Christ's supremacy over them. For in him, this is Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul's emphasizing the subordinate nature of these forces relative to Christ. And then Colossians 1.15 and 16, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones 
or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Whether it's physical rulers, or as Paul appears to be referencing here, the spiritual and demonic rulers and authorities, Christ as creator is supreme over all of them. Every last one of them is subordinate to, sits under Christ. Again, I told you we'd be back in Ephesians. Back in Ephesians again, looking at the last of three specific truths that, des- that Paul desired for the Ephesian believers. He prayed that they would know, in Ephesians 1.19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See the public nature of this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ here is shown as supreme over these rulers and authorities. We see one more reference in Ephesians 5. This is more well known for many of you. Paul references the rulers and authorities again. Uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, uh, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual rulers and authorities are real. We would see materialism, the idea that the only thing that is real is physical matter, very common today in our culture. We would see that as completely contrary to the scriptures. There are spiritual forces, rulers, and authorities that are just as real as the chair that you're sitting on right now. Every single one of them, though, is subordinate to Christ. They hold no power over you if you are in Christ. But what weapon, I want to go back to the weapon, what weapon has been removed by these or from these subordinate powers? It would be helpful, I think, this week in your community groups to discuss what some of those weapons might be. Um, I'll ask you what spiritual weapons of the enemy are illegitimately effective against you in your daily walk. How can firmly gripping the truth that Christ is supreme over these get you out of a state of fear and maybe paralysis? One, One very real armament of the enemy that my family has faced recently is the fear of death. Many of you, as I mentioned, have been praying for my mom, and I I thank you for that. It seemed pretty clear a few weeks ago that we would lose her. In God's kindness, it seems right now, he's got a bit left here for her to do, though. But on the 17th of last month, I was convinced mom was done here. And I wrote the following. To state that death is a blessing would be shocking. And also very wrong. <laughs> Death is a curse. And such a curse that it could not only or that it could only be overcome by the death of Jesus himself. But what a thing. It is through the effect of this curse that we begin to enjoy in person the relationship for which God has originally created us. Direct in person communion with God Himself. What Satan intended for evil, God uses for good to Adjust Joseph's words a bit. Paul, what does Paul encourage the Corinthian church with in 1 Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians 15, 
55 through 58. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. One weapon removed from these spiritual rulers and authorities is the fear of death. Our eternal hope that we have in the sin debt payment of Christ is practical and real. Whatever these weapons of the enemy may be, any others that you may come up with, Paul's point is not so much the weapons, but that any of these weapons are no longer in play. There's no reason to fear these spiritual rulers and authorities in any way because Christ sits over them in triumph. Let's touch on two final points in this last verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. These rulers and authorities have been disarmed, not by us, but by Christ, and we are in Christ as believers. But Paul makes clear here that not only is Christ victorious over these, but he's put them to open shame. This open shame involves broadly, openly, loudly proclaiming the utter defeat and humiliation of these spiritual rulers and authorities. This is pictured clearly in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. We looked at it earlier. Um, this is what he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is all very public and very visible to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Imagine in the spiritual realm, this, this, is, this is very visible. Um, he, he is placed above every name that's named, not only in this age, not just now, but also in the one to come. So Christian, Christ has triumphed over the enemy in his death and resurrection. And by the powerful working of God, we are raised in Christ. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit is life. And the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Christian, latch on to what you have in Christ. Assurance, victory. So this morning we've walked through Paul's encouragement to the Colossian Christians. They faced influences and arguments that minimized Christ's supremacy. Paul's response is to ground them in the supremacy of Christ in his completed work on their behalf. He reminds them where they were outside Christ, dead, under the curse. He reminds them of where they are in Christ, alive, forgiven. And he reminds them that of all that they have in Christ, assurance and victory. One last point. Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, if you do not yet belong to Christ, the past tense were in Colossians 2.13 is still an R for you. You may be here and still dead in your trespasses, still accursed, still fully responsible, I'm sorry, still accused and fully responsible. For your own sin debt. The concern that I have for you 
is that there's no option for payment outside Christ and his work. You must turn to Christ in repentance. Until you give up your own efforts and place your faith in Christ's completed work on your behalf, you remain dead and under the judgment of the perfect law of a holy God. We would love to talk to you about this. A couple of pastors will be down here after the message, after the service, if you have questions. I encourage you. Christ is supreme. He is fully sufficient. He is fully satisfying. Let me pray for you.